Okay, back here with uh, Pat Pitney, current president of the University of Alaska. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I've been trying to get you. Um, last time I saw you, you were still with uh, Ledge Finance, right? Correct. In the Capitol. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, the first time I heard of you was when you were Governor Walker's uh, director of manage- office management and budget. But the first thing I heard was was she's a gold medalist in the 1984 Olympics. That. That was right, but that's you know that was pre kid days uh, when when I was just eighteen. So you were um, eighty four was the the boycott right with the, the uh, Soviets and the Eastern kind of bloc countries. Yeah, it was. So we, uh, you know, we competed against the the Eastern bloc countries in the spring, but come Olympic time, they uh, paid the United States back for the United States boycotting the Russian Olympics in 1980. Yeah, in Moscow, right? Yeah. So you were air rifle, um, and you just grew up shooting, and you got it. I mean, that's, because you were pretty young, 18. That's a pretty yeah. young gold medalist. Yeah, I started, I was nine when I got started. I have uh, older brothers and sisters, and we did everything as a family. So we, when we started to ski, we skied. When we shot, we shot. And it was a junior club and in Billings, and my dad was active in the club and I started and but I was much younger than everybody else most people don't start until they're 12 and mm-hmm. so I started when I was nine by the time I was 11 I was pretty good at it and figured that was something I'd stick with and by the time I was 13 that's really where my focus was and good call sticking with <laughs> good call yeah and uh yeah so by by 13 that was that was my focus, I was going to school. I'd you were in Lower Fort. You were. I was in Montana, Billings, Montana. So you got. I mean, I assume when you were a teenager, somebody said, "Wow, she's really good. We should." Were you part of like a team, like the U.S. kind of team? So, or? so you had to to compete to get onto the U.S. team, and so I was on the U.S. team when I was fifteen on the junior team, and it, when I was seventeen, I started traveling internationally, and. Um, And so really, I had I'd almost turned 19. So I had, had two years of international competition with the U.S. team um, and had reasonable success, had won the Pan American Games, had won several national championships before the Olympics, won the NCAAs that year. Were the Soviets like really competitive in the air rifle um, or the Eastern Yeah, bloc? Russia, but East Germany, Czechoslovakia, um, or pretty strong. So were you kind of were you kind of sad they weren't there? Yeah, definitely. Because you 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 want the best in the world mm-hmm. ar- around you, and you know I I performed at a level that I thought would have, um, you know, put me in the running no matter who was there. But you always want you I, always want the best there. I checked earlier who who got there was a Chinese woman that got the bronze, right? And then yeah, was... and a lady from Italy who I actually had never competed against in uh, or really seen in any magazines so she was kind of somebody that just hadn't been on the circuit she was so. like a sleeper exactly so so 84 was like the big that was they say kind of the first really modern olympics is, is with reagan you know, reagan was there mm-hmm. in california and the whole 
Did you see Ray? Were you there for the I, opening? Yep. I, I met Reagan on three occasions that year. Wow. When you yeah. won, probably got the gold, right? Yeah. So when back then, do they, I know now if you get the gold, they give you money. Is that, was that back then or no? No, no. I, that was kind of the last of the amateur. I mean, it was the first of the professionals um, because, um, you know, basketball had kind of shifted to the more professional players. In some ways, it was first of the professional mm-hmm. players, but also the last of the. Because now you get paid amateurs. pretty like twenty five or, th- I forget what it yeah. is, but the so the Russians pay a lot actually. Yeah, really. I think it's. I mean, the last I heard, it was twenty five thousand. But, you know, in the grand scheme of, of preparing, all the work. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably a couple couple bucks. That's that's <laughs> that's three that's three or four training trips. But, I mean, it, it, it's not chump change. But mm-hmm. yeah, but I was the last of. We, we did have sponsorships through um, the governing body, the U.S. shooting governing body. And so I didn't, you know, I I was able to afford it. My parents spent a lot of money, though. Did you keep competing? Like, you didn't go to the other Olympics later? Or? No, I was um, eight months pregnant the t- when I shot tryouts for the next Olympics. And Where was 88? Was that? No, it was in uh, South Korea. Yeah, Spain was 92, right? Yep. It was in Barcelona. Yeah, it was in Barcelona. So you moved, when did you move to Alaska then? Because you went to U- University of Alaska Fairbanks, right? No, I went to Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky. And so the we had two, two of the years I was there, we had uh, the NCAA championship teams. And then the opposite two years, I won one air rifle one year, the, the Olympic year, and then... <clears throat> One small bore. But when you moved, you moved to Alaska later, didn't did you get a master's? I moved, I moved to Alaska and got my master's in Fairbanks. Um, so I moved right after my senior year. What brought you to Alaska? Uh, my uh, husband. Oh, uh, the father of my children now. <laughs> yeah, good reason. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, I didn't really know about you until the OMB. I kind of knew your name, but you were working for the university before, right? I was. I was vice chancellor at University of Alaska Fairbanks, but prior to that, I'd spent 18 years in the system office as the, essentially the lead budget person for the university system. So did you know, you, you must have known Bill Walker? Or? I actually, I had met him on occasion because my my close friends were helping him with his campaign the first time he ran for governor. Oh, in 2010. Yeah. And so I'd met him, and and he wanted to see the camp campus. So I took him around the campus, but only only in you know largely in passing. I had never met the uh, lieutenant governor before the interview for the uh, budget director job. So the OMB did he call you and say we want to want you to apply, or did they call you and say we want you to be the director? They called. So I was working for Brian Rogers at the time, and um, Brian was a used to be a legislator, and then he was chancellor at University of Alaska Fairbanks at the time, and uh, kind of close with Byron Malott. And he was like, you know, there's not that many people qualified, and Karen Rayfield's retiring, and mm-hmm. you really should consider doing this. And then, then I got a call from... Jim Whitaker at the, oh, the who, chief of staff. yeah, and said, "Hey, would you come down and interview?" And that was on a Friday, or that was on a Thursday. I went down and interviewed on a Saturday in Anchorage, and on Monday they told me I had the job. On Tuesday, that was quick. They announced the job. On Wednesday was my last day at the university, and on Thursday my daughter and I got in a car from Fairbanks and drove to Juneau. 
Wow, that was yeah. That was Thanksgiving, and we started on the first on Monday. So, have you before that? Have you ever considered being the OMB director? Was it something you ever thought about? Or no, my my reaction when Brian says you really should do this is he said I said Brian, it's in Juno, it rains in Juno. Oh yeah, well not now we're here now, and it's like it's beautiful, it's cold, very but, cold. It's like fair. Well, for you, yeah, it's probably nothing because yeah. it's. Fair, not Fairbanks cold, but it's below zero. It's yeah, pretty, it, pretty it's chilly. pretty cold for Juno, but no, it's. Uh, but I, I actually got to really like Juno, and after after the OMB job, I took time off and went and um, spent time helping my parents, and uh, was so excited to be back and in, in Alaska. Oh, Forty eight, or yeah, they're still in Billings, Montana. I have a lot of friends who went to college in Montana, Bozeman, yeah, Bozeman or. Missoula, either one. Yeah. A lot of Alaskans mm-hmm. go there for school. Yeah. So, so I just actually, it's funny. I just did a podcast with Bill Walker a couple of days ago on Zoom, and we nice. were talking about um, the fiscal stuff. And <clears throat> you know, he tried. To, I told people can love him or hate him, his plan, but he, he really tried. You guys tried to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I watch these Senate finance meetings now, and you know, I ran in 2012 for the Senate because just because I was going to these uh, RDC and and AOG, you know, AOGA and whatever, and I started following kind of Brad Keithley. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, we're spending a lot of money here. That was when the deficit started. Right. And I just kept saying, you know, this is, we can't keep doing this and it's going to, it's going to end at some point. And it, you know, the combination of Walker won, the prices oil started, went way down. Tanked. And then the, you know, the savings were eight, eight, eaten up, at, you know, a couple billion a year. Mm-hmm. So we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, do you think there was anything you guys could have done differently to... I know the legislature was a big issue with getting some of this done, but I mean, if you could have had it your way, I know they wanted to put all the money in the permanent fund, right? All the savings, that was one discussion, but. Right. One, one of our plans was, um, was to, to restructure how, how the permanent fund worked, but, but the bottom line of, of it was to treat the permanent fund as an endowment where you take a fixed amount from it, period. So um, that you, um, you know, and one, one plan was we would put all annual revenues in the permanent fund, but then have, you know, a certain fixed percentage off, off of that permanent fund, which right now is the POM, essentially the POMV approach that's currently in play not in play. It's currently in law. Um, that that was one of the accomplishments during the Walker administration, where the percent of market value you can use up to five percent of the of the value of the permanent fund for um, state costs, whether it be for services or for the dividend, but it's capped at five percent. And so. It, the the idea was exactly the same, except that other revenue would go in there and you'd take a slightly higher percent. <clears throat> and what it would do is just smooth it. But right now, the percent of market value is 75% of our annual revenue. Yeah, it That used to annual be. draw is, is 75%. We are no longer an oil state. We're an endowment state. Yeah, because it used to be 90% oil for a long time. For a it's, long it's, time. It's kind of funny. I mean, if you take the... And there's, that's the big fight, obviously, as a mm-hmm. dividend, but... With the with the POMV and then with the other other revenues, we're basically balanced right now. Uh, it's with, with a very tight with a very tight budget in terms of you know. With about a four and a half, I guess four. It's about four and a half billion, right? That's right. Kind of the revenue. It's, it's, it's very tight 
in terms of it accommodates the operating budget, but it's it's very light on the capital budget. But it's but it's in the ball. It's very close to being balanced without without a dividend. Now you took over for a while, not very long, because when you mm-hmm. went to the univer- university, but you were the head of ledge finance, which is I guess equivalent of the OMB for the legislature. Correct. And so you were you were there during the Walker time, but then you were there later. Um, I mean, what's your mm-hmm. outlook for this? Because I look at this stuff and I watch, I watch these finance hearings, and it's it doesn't look good to me. I mean, it doesn't look mm-hmm. very promising. There's no there's no savings left except the earnings account. Right. So. You know, I, I look at the permanent fund that's inclusive of the earnings reserve as the source of the lion's share of our operating revenue on an annual basis. It's, again, 75% on an annual basis comes from that percent of market draw off of the permanent fund value, which is inclusive of the corpus and the earnings reserve. So you, you can't look at the earnings reserve as a savings account. You need to look at the whole value of the permanent fund corpus plus earnings reserve and and view it as the retirement account. I kind of wonder if when they were developing the permanent fund, if maybe they didn't even foresee a situation where, because, you know, you can, it's 51, it's, it's a majority for the earning where the CBR mm-hmm. and everything else is three quarters. And I wonder if maybe they didn't even think about the possibility of the legislature being able to, with a majority vote, take take money out of there because everything else is three quarters right you know i just don't think they could have imagined i don't know that they imagined how much the state was going to have to rely on on the earnings um as essentially the right now i mean nearly the sole source you know of it and the future source I mean, the the uh, resistance on on other revenues um, that was part of the Governor Walker plan. The resistance to having other revenue um, makes the long term viability of the permanent fund percent of market value draw absolutely critical. And if you well, spend down the earnings reserve, that percent of market value drops down, you know, 50, well, 50 million per billion you draw. Well, that's a scary thing is if they start, you know, because there's, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what's in there now. It's probably over $10 billion in there because there, there were some gains after mm-hmm. the, the drop last year. Right. But if they start to go, you know, go in there for big dividends or mm-hmm. just pay, pay for government, uh, every dollar we take out of there today loses, you know, that earnings potential tomorrow forever forever so i don't know what's going to happen but it'll it'll be mm-hmm. interesting the house still hasn't even <laughs> organized so we don't know what the the house is going to do yeah. so how, so okay you got to the university because jim johnson retired uh, re, uh, i guess resigned last year mm-hmm. and then there was an interim president but how how that happened they they came back to you and said hey <laughs> come 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 over here now come back you know i i really enjoyed the ledge finance job it was a good influence um i i got to to talk about things that i cared about i got to work with people who were trying to do the best they can for the state i you're, mean you were dealing you, with all that um the cares act money the cares for, act that was money. a big one yeah that yeah was. but you know the legislators um 
the legislators are sacrificing a lot to come and and uh, and and make these decisions. And no kidding, they have to make the decisions. Only the legislature can make certain decisions. And so, being able to to be a, an advisor was was very important. And and I'd only you know I only worked during the the Dunleavy administration, and only for really for about like eight months. Not even eight. Yeah, maybe eight months. Short of eight months. You got a big shoes to fill with uh, David Teal. Yeah, right? with David David uh, leaving, and so so it was, and and it was a job that I I felt like I could do for a really long time. You know, if the if the powers that be in the legislature would, you know, appreciated my work. It's and, a legislative budget, not it. They they hired the ledge finance person, e- right? Exactly, and so. A lot of people know about that committee, but it's kind of a big deal. That legislative <laughs> they, they budget audit committee has has some has some uh, huge authority and a responsibility. It's it's a good committee, and but it's a broad committee because it's both House and Senate. Mm-hmm. It's like large council. It's big, yeah. Yeah, but uh, a faculty member called and asked if she could nominate me, and I'm like, no, I really like Juno. I mean, I didn't say no. I said you can nominate me, but I just can't imagine I'd take it. But I got a call that says, hey, you're, you're a finalist. And then the next day that, that was on a Thursday and the next day they announced it. And then the next day on a Saturday they called and said, hey, they, their board would like to see a resume before they interview you on Monday. And Tuesday they offered me the job. And, it's like the OMB thing. Yeah, just like, <laughs> um, so, but so the fortunate the- thing is I said, I need I need a couple of weeks. I had, I had some things I wanted to mm-hmm. get done before. So I, I uh, so that was the 15th of Jan, uh, July, and I started at the university on the 1st of August. So the Board of Regents just determines that, right? Correct. So was there a lot of, I didn't really remember, did a lot of people apply, or was it? I, there were several people that applied. There were five finalists. And, um, and I, you know, I made a call to a lot of legislators that night to say, you know, I, I got this call, you know, kind of looking at, at the people. That are on the list, um, you know. I kind of i I feel like I'd be a good fit for the university at this time, but you know, kind of want to because because part of what the university's success is is how how the legislature views you, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> views the university. I said, do you? <laughs> you don't want to go know, there if they if, if they I hate you. you know yeah exactly if if and and I we'll it, show it, her <laughs> yeah no it was a mix of you you absolutely got to take it to oh my god we're we're gonna so miss you and I said but it's interim you know so no, but not not short enough interim that I felt like it they could go without refilling it so I was very pleased with uh, their selection and getting Alexi back and he was right he's the right next person yeah no I I, I met him several times over the Juno yeah. so he's a Smart, smart guy. Smart guy. So, so I, you know, when you think about the budget and the, you know, the crisis here, you, people think of the ferry system, I think, and the university, mm-hmm. those, you know, a few other things, I guess, but those are the, mm-hmm. um, so it seems like you'd come there at a very critical time where, you know, the budget was, re- it was, I mean, the couple of years ago, the, the Dunleavy administration proposed, I mean, it was 140, yeah, big, and then a lot of that came back, but mm-hmm. You know, we we saw this restructuring they signed, right? That kind of cut back over three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what you know, why that seems like a really <laughs> it seems like a hard job right now. It 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 is it is a bit daunting, but um, you know, I have the right background for it, and you know, 
my first 18 years at the university was looking at university cost structure. I was budget director. I was doing all, all of the cost analysis. So I've, I've known the institution. I've seen it through really hard times, and I've seen it um, through um, growth periods. And understand where our, our real constraints are and where our, our points of success are. And it really comes down to programs. We have to, um, we have to focus on the programs that attract the students, that attract the research, um, that uh, support our industries throughout the state. And so, you know, I thought, as hard as it was going to be, I've, I've got a pretty good background in my understanding and perspective on the state's fiscal situation. Gives some, um, I, I'm able to talk in kind of realities within the institution of, you know, we we have we have to focus on the programs so we have the enrollment and the tuition and and uh, we also have to. Uh, focus on our administrative cost reductions and and really reaching across our institutions um, where where we have a gap in one place we need we need mm-hmm. to reach across the institution to fill that gap and we are you know we're going to be thinner we're going to have a smaller footprint we're going to be leaner but because we're going to focus on those programs we're going to be able to support our communities our students and our and really the businesses. So when I did the podcast a couple of years ago with uh, Jim Johnson, right, right next door there, um, you know, one of the things I asked about was the land grant, the the, the federal land we mm-hmm. still haven't got, right. which is going back, you know, decades, many decades. Is I mean, what is that ever going to happen? Uh, why don't so, we have our land? Yeah. So <clears throat> they, uh, I, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, uh, to Jim Johnson and his work on. Moving that initiative forward. Also, I have to give some credit to the governor, who's been very supportive of it, and of course our delegation. So, Don, Don, Congressman Young he talks about that a lot. Yeah, um, all 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 three. Um, so Senator Murkowski introduced it in in the Senate, and so it's it was introduced last fall, and it's a it's a bill that will allow three hundred sixty thousand acres of federal land within the 5 million acres yet due to the state. Um, so five, 5 million acres of federal land are still yet to be conveyed to the state. This allows 360,000 of that 5 million to be conveyed to the university directly from the federal government. Well, and, we've been owed this land for, when was the university established? In like the 19... 19- uh, it's over 100 century. years. Yeah. yeah, it's over 100 years. And we're land land grant, which goes back to right. you know the 18th century, or 19th century, right? Um, and that's how we're established. But I, what's been the roadblock of us getting the the university getting the land yeah. they're owed by the gov- government? Well, we weren't a state, and when we became a state, much of the state issues were around land, and the universities portion of that always got pushed back but a little bit for context and and um, you know j- just to put it in perspective so 
the university has 110,000 acres of federal land grant and about 150,000 total acres. Now, if you add the 360,000 acres, we'd be just over 500,000 acres. You can do, I mean, if there's, if there's minerals there or resources, mm-hmm. or you can, re- I mean, you can do whatever you want with it at the university once they get yeah, it. Yeah, once, once, once it comes. But, uh, but the process is when you monetize the land, let's say you sell the land, that those proceeds, like the permanent fund, goes into an endowment on which then you draw 5%, or actually it's 4.5%. It's a more conservative endowment. And then then you have that amount of money. So that, that amount of money right now is about $6.8 million on 150,000 acres. Mental Health Trust has a million acres, and they have an annual revenue of about $10 million under that same endowment huh. model. University of Texas has 2.1 million acres. They received it in the 1870s, and they make 21 billion a year. Wow! So we're never going to be in the Texas, Texas yeah. land grant, even though we're four times the land mass as Texas. We're never, you know, even with this bill, which is great, and we need it. Um, you can, I mean, you can drive anywhere in Texas. The right. land's probably yeah, and and <laughs> more you're, accessible. So, twenty-one billion. Twenty-one billion on two point one million acres that they received in the eighteen seventies. And you said the mental health trust has a million acres. A million acres and ten million dollars. But so, you know, again, the mental health trust didn't have access to their land until um, recent. So I if mean, it was comparable to Texas, they'd, they'd be getting ten billion dollars. Well, if it was no, kind of comparable, kind of. No, no, the one million versus. Because you said Texas has two million, two, yeah, two point one, right? But again, the the land because you have to sell the land, mm-hmm. monetize it, and it's also. Were you the first one to get land, and therefore you have oil and minerals on yeah, it, and or were you the last one to get land, we'll which you, is we'll, where, which is where uh, we'll give you that health, land that nobody, yeah, which is where mental health trust and the university were. They both ended up getting control of their land, through, through significant legal issues mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s. So even if we even if the university gets all the land they're owed and do you does the university select it or who who selects the land? The, the university gets to make the selection out of what is yet to be conveyed to the state. 5 million. Yeah. So let's say it's best case scenario and there's some really good land. I mean it's not going to be a, even in the best case scenario enough money to really it, make a huge impact. Right. It's it, it's, it's a tipping point impact. So it can take a good program and make it a very good program. Mm-hmm. Right now, one of the, the biggest pieces, uh, one of the biggest distributions from the Land Grant Trust Fund is our uh, the UA Scholars Program that provides a scholarship to the top 5% and of each, from each high school class. And that was built, that was started in 1998 to attract you know, the best and brightest, but also to, to, to attract those people who are going to be the future leaders and, and create a sense, a sense of cohort mm-hmm. and community uh, across those uh, individuals. And, you know, you ask a lot of people if they were a UA scholar and, you know, and they're in their 30s now. And, and even if they didn't go to the university, they'll identify as a UA scholar. So there's a point of pride in, mm-hmm. in, in that distinction. So the other thing I wanted to ask, I went to UA, I went to UA, I graduated, I moved from New Mexico. So I, I grew up in New Mexico and 
I decided to move here when I was 19, and wow. there was the wooey, which was uh-huh. part of it, actually, because I wanted to get out of New Mexico, and I, I, for some reason, decided Alaska was the big adventure back mm-hmm. in 2004. This is before, like, Google Maps and all this. We drove up here, me and a buddy, and we got to Canada, and we're like, oh, we're, we're in Montana, you know, uh-huh. we're, we're almost there, and we're not almost there, <laughs> you know, and we get here, and um, anyways, I had the, the Western undergraduate exchange, mm-hmm. so I was able to get a little tuition break, but... Um, and I ended up grad, I was on the seven year plan, you know, like, you know, what's that, uh, Tommy boy, you know, a lot of people go to school for seven. Yeah. They're called doctors. <laughs> um, but one thing I always wondered was, this has come up a little bit, but wh- why have three, why not have one university? Like, like some States have mm-hmm. one or New Mexico has two university of New Mexico and then New Mexico state, but we have three mm-hmm. separate ones, you know, and, and we're, you know, 700 mm-hmm. some thousand people. Right. Why not consolidate down to one, but then have the kind of campuses, the Fairbanks, the Anchorage, and mm-hmm. the Juno? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that save money? It it will. The disruption loses more money than you gain. So there's it's a it's a three legged stool, in terms of funding. It's there's the state funds, there's the um, tuition funds, and then there's the research funds. And the research funds are competitive. So the research funds don't just show up. You have to have the very best scientists and they uh, compete against the very best scientists from across the nation, sometimes across the world. And um, so you have, you have that financially you have three stools, but you also have uh, an advocacy and um, at, from each each university has uh, responsibility and advocacy to their their community, the industries in their community. So like University of Alaska Southeast here in Juneau is focused very much on uh, the uh, fisheries and ocean sciences, marine sciences, and at the same time they're focused on marine tech. So in New Mexico, not only did you have two universities, you had several community colleges. Right, yeah, there is. So here we we have a research university, an urban comprehensive, and a small regional. But each of those universities also has the vocational education and the community college responsibilities for their communities. And if you were going to start from scratch, maybe you would start with one. But we we have three accredited universities and that accreditation is kind of the basis for for the the stability and the quality and going to one you'll have 6 years at the same time 6 years of of disruption and you know having to go through the reaccreditation and at the same time you or creating uncertainty in your community about your programs. At the, rather than um, taking away those choices, the experience at University of Alaska Fairbanks is very different than the experience at Anchorage. Um, and what we're trying to do is keep more and more of our students in state. And to take that experience away or to take a access to a program away in a community, you 
you get less now. So focus on the program, make sure the program access points are available. On the other side, look at how can you get those programs to work well together so if there's an expertise gap, they're picking it up. In, in the event there's a couple of them, there's, there's only a, pl- a few places where we have a couple of programs across the system. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and in some places we only have a couple and we should have four or five. Like, you know, well, te- they, they, te- teacher education has uh, only, you know, we have, you know, a couple of, you know, we have Fairbanks and, and Southeast now. In Montana, there are 13 colleges and universities that have elementary ed, you know. We're producing about 300 teachers. They're producing about a thousand teachers a year, and so there's there's a certain there's a certain need for programs to be broad scoped. It, it seems to me like I went to UA, and I mean the one that sticks out there is a nursing program. That's the mm-hmm. one that mm-hmm. you know for years. I don't know if it's still the same, but there was a big waiting list, and it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then Fairbanks, you think of the petroleum engineering, and you think of some of the Arctic, mm-hmm. you know, research. So it seems like each one of them has the things that are really. Right. You know, the Anchorage has, you know, the business and the, and the economics. Mm-hmm. So I guess my kind of question about why not let let them stand alone? But, you know, it sounds like there's other challenges with Well, no, with I think, that. you no, you absolutely let them stand alone because engineering, we need both sets of engineering programs. And, um, you know, Anchorage focuses on buildings and seismic and in, in, in civil. And in Fairbanks, they focus on roads and bridges and uh, permafrost and hydrology and where they have an expertise gap that they can share they share programs but we need every civil engineer those two programs produce and then some to fill the industry needs do we we, i saw a presentation a couple days ago in the part of it in the senate education it seems like a lot of there's pretty high retention of people who graduate in alaska Mm -hmm. who stay in alaska is that, is that, were those numbers higher than other states? It seems like ninety percent. Some of them are pretty, pretty high. Seventy to ninety percent, depending on the on the program, stay in state and work in the industry. And I, you know, I have people from Providence saying, "I, I need every nurse you can, and, and and Alaska Regional, every nurse you can produce, will will hire them because we don't want to, or Bartlett for that matter, we don't want to have to hire people from out of state. They're expensive." Um, and your nurses stay, and teachers the same to, way. People move to Alaska, and a lot of times they, after a couple, I have a lot yeah. of friends, you know, they, they're, yeah, somebody, wants, somebody wants to leave, they just don't, they don't, they don't like it here. Yeah. And so we do, and I, I haven't looked at what it is in other states, but I know from an industry standpoint that we have 70 to 90% of our graduates going directly to work. And sometimes, you know, and, and in many areas, well, all of the areas, their earnings are, they're, they have much more earnings capacity, um, like the process technology. Five years in, it's a two-year degree program. To, it's mostly operators on the pipeline and oil rigs and oil services companies and utilities. But five years in and after a two-year program, 130000 a year on average. This yeah. is the average. So I have to make it more. And, than- right. And these guys, um, guys, ladies... Um, stay, these are, the, these people live in state versus the operators that are flying back and forth. Right. Yeah. So, they hit you know, two on, two off. Yeah. And so that retention, um, that, 
what we have is a much tighter link from our program. We, we very much focused in the um, late 90s and early 2000s, all the way through the mid-2000s, is to put in programs that directly linked to the industry needs. And we're seeing that now with these reports, is that the, the programs work in partnership with the industry, the students graduate, they go to work. Um, I looked at the, the marine or the ocean sciences program here at University of Alaska Southeast. Um, you know, 51 of the 58 grads working in state, you know, <laughs> boom, right now. That's and, and it, so it's, it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's just much, a much tighter link, you know, inflation adjusted funding from the state today or in 22 will be what it was in 1998. We called that the end of the desert. At that point in time, we had about uh, 70 nursing graduates, undergraduate nursing graduates here. Today we have 230 graduates every year. In the health fields, we have 750 graduates. We didn't have anything really other than nursing and the 10 whammy graduates. And the state's and contribution with inflation is... This the same as 98? Yeah. Wow. And engineers, we had 85 graduating. Today we have 230 graduating every year, undergraduate engineers. And and this these are the ones where 80% are going off, you know, off to going to work for mm-hmm. Alaska companies. So we're, uh, we're, we're getting past the 30 minutes and I got to okay. go. But last question I wanted to ask is on that kind of topic, you know, where do you see, see the university in? you know, 20, 10 years or 20 years mm-hmm. with all the challenges that are, it's facing right now. Mm-hmm. I, I see a, a, a very innovative university uh, where, you know, many, many programs have uh, done well through this COVID. Some have, have suffered, but have done well because they were on the front end of uh, hybrid delivery. So some remote and some, some on-site, some intensives. And those, you know, those programs have done well. We're, uh, we are capitalizing on our expertise um, and, and making that content uh, available uh, kind of worldwide. So, so we're focusing on our strengths, uh, but we're also using the innovation to um, deliver things as efficiently as possible in the environment we live in. I mean, we are, uh, you know, not, not every uh, university uh, operates in 20 below weather yeah. or Anchorage at, you know, zero or <laughs> southeast. Well, and so, so we, we have challenges of, on our infrastructure that are there. Um, but I think you'll see it as, as a, a very much the center of the discussions around what industry needs, around what the state needs. Uh, we're in the business of upward mobility. Where a person is, um, they have the ability to have an affordable path to the next best job. Well, I think one thing, this COVID thing, as horrible as it is, it's kind of taught us all we can do a lot from our, our, you know, our Zoom, our camera, mm-hmm. and our computer. 
yeah. with people in the same place or far away and mm-hmm. um, that might you know there's always a silver lining so right. you can do a lot but we're not gonna be able to do everything no but I think we can take some of those best practices <clears throat> and um, and apply it going forward well uh, President Pitney thank you for coming on the podcast and we're here at the Marine Engineer um, Benevolent Association so <laughs> right, right next to your building the right university next. And then right across from the Capitol. So I'm yeah. sure you'll be watching very closely what happens there over the next couple months. Right. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming in. And I will, will be next time I watch the Summer Olympics, whenever that happens, I'll make sure and I watch the air rifle. I'll, I'll think of you in 84. There you go. Should should be uh, should be this summer in Tokyo. Hopefully, yeah. That's, we missed it last time. So. Yeah, exactly. Do you still get involved? I know you didn't. You do the Sochi thing. Weren't you on a I, uh, part of the torch? I carried the torch for the Sochi Olympics Uh on the North Pole, 90 degrees north. It was very cool. On a, on a, on a boat, a ship? We, we, we took a, a Russian icebreaker wow. to the North Pole. Where'd you get on? The, where'd you, get, where'd you in, get on? In Murmansk, Russia. You went to Murmansk? Wow, that is way up there. How, well, you flew yeah. to Moscow and then you... Flew to Moscow and then flew up. So I've been pretty far up. No, I've not been as far as Murmansk, but wow, that's a lot of history there. It, it's, oh, it's quite the city. Wow, I so you, well, I, didn't, I didn't realize we'll have to do another talk about that sometime. So oh, it was it was a great experience. I bet. Well, I, I really so. appreciate you coming on, President Pitney. Thank you. Okay, appreciate um, it, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, uh, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.